We have two scriptures this morning. The first is Matthew 28, 16 through 20, the Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Second scripture is Acts 2, 42-47. The fellowship of the believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Word of God. When we uh, gathered for prayer this morning, um, John was praying for me, and he said, God, if um, give Kelly you know, a good message, help him, prepare, help him share what he's prepared, and if it's not what you want to say, God, just have him throw his notes away and speak. <laughs> what you don't know is that losing my notes is like one of my worst nightmares, okay? So I have it on my tablet, and if that fails, I have it on my phone. <laughs> and if everything goes to pieces, I've got it printed out. Um, yeah, that's not, uh, not going to be my strong suit. When I was a youth pastor, sometimes we would have, you know, in a worship time, we would have a few moments of silence. And, and young people, teenagers would tell me that was sometimes the most meaningful part of the whole evening. So, if God takes away my notes, <laughs> we're going to have 30 minutes of silence. <laughs> okay? Um, everybody loves a good sequel. Um, you know, we see them in, in literature. We see the Lord of the Rings um, trilogy. We see C.S. Lewis with Chronicles of Narnia. Um, TV series. Um, you, you know, you have the season finale. You have the whole, the whole season builds up to the season finale. And you know, you want to know what happens next. And so you're kind of left hanging for a while. Um, movies. There's great, great trilogy series or long sequel series like Star Wars or... I mean, who didn't like Top Gun Maverick? And who isn't looking forward to the 10th installment of the Fast and Fury series coming in May? I didn't even know there was three. Um, But they are, um, they're they're very popular, and and for good reason. They're interesting. They keep us going. They tell, you know, the rest of the story. And there was a a radio announcer um, named Paul Harvey, that some of you may remember. Um, he was a news broadcaster on the radio. Now that's the thing for the younger generations, is the radio is the thing in the car that we connect our Bluetooth to, to play music. But we used to listen to that, we used to listen to it live, and listen to 
radio broadcast, and he was very popular, and, and he, he was like an hour-long podcast, not podcast, newscast, um, for like 50 years. Um, and he had some very notable quotes. One of his quotes was, um, in times like these, it helps to recall that there have always been times like these. Or my, one of my favorites is, I have never seen a monument erected to a pessimist. Um, but perhaps he was, he was best known for his series called The Rest of the Story. And he had this great voice, and he says, now the rest of the story. And he would, he would tell stories. It was kind of like a, a short, like if you can imagine a short podcast in the middle of your playlist. So you're listening to something, and then all of a sudden Paul Harvey breaks in for a few minutes and gives you a segment called The Rest of the Story. And it may have been the backstory about what led up to a certain event that's been well publicized, or it may have been the aftermath, what happened after that happened, um, or it may have been about private things about somebody that was knowable that we don't really know, that kind of led to their, what, how their fame came about, or what their home life was like. Um, but it always concluded with, you know, this is great voice saying, and that is the rest of the story. I wish I had a recording of that to play, but I don't. So last week, we celebrated Easter. And, and Pastor John started, you know, with the Christmas message and then led us all the way to Easter looking at the life of Christ and the different things that Christ said, the things that he did. And when Easter came about, it wasn't the end of the story. After the resurrection... Um, which was his victory over death, you know, the centerpiece of our faith. It, it wasn't even the end of the chapter yet, because in the next 40 days, Jesus made no less than 40 appearances to his disciples. Um, and near the end, he gave them what we call the Great Commission. And it was read for us, I'll read it again. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, if this had been a, a movie or a novel or even a TV series, they couldn't have done a better job of setting up the season finale, if you think about that, because he's talking about, here's what I want you to go do now. And then he ascended into heaven. Um, now, we look at this and we go, okay, so what happened next? Will his, will his followers listen and do what he says? Will the ministry simply end or will it continue? You know, we know now that that wasn't the end of the story. It may be the end of a chapter in God's story, but the, the book of Acts is the sequel to the life and ministry of Christ. And in a lot of ways, we are the sequel. It was the beginning of the church. And the church began after that um, and, it, it, and it grew incredibly. Um, but it, it was in, a, it was in a, a, a context of oppression and persecution. It was not easy to be a Christian, and yet Scripture tells us the church grew dramatically. Um, to give you an idea of the depth of the persecution, eight out of the 12 apostles, plus Paul, eight of those were actually crucified or stoned to death or killed in some way. And it's against this backdrop that we see this incredible growth of the church. It grew from 120 believers in Acts 1 to over 3,000 in Luke 2. Pew Research, uh, research group says that there was, 
1910, um, so 110, 113 years ago, there were 600 million Christians in the world. And by 2011, that had grown to 2.2 billion. And they're forecasting that by 2035, um, that we will grow to about 3.5 billion believers. So this is... This is the rest of the story. It's not done yet. Um, after our lives, if Jesus doesn't come, there'll be the next sequel. Um, and it may feel like it's declining around us, like we look at those numbers and we go, but wait a minute, I feel like Christianity is declining around me in my culture. And, and it is, but Christianity worldwide is growing. and We're just seeing the, the center of Christianity perhaps shifting more to the south. Uh, and that's where the great growth is happening. The chapters are still being written. We're part of that. We are the rest of the story. It's continuously unfolding in front of us. Um, you and I are sitting here today in Chapel of Pines in Arnold, California, um, some 2,000 years later um, than when Jesus gave the Great Commission. Um, we can be thankful for all of the original followers that took his command seriously and all the people since then that have enabled us to actually know Christ now in our lives. To be perfectly honest, the Great Commission, I think, could easily be the most intimidating passage in Scripture because Jesus is actually telling us, commissioning us to go out and make more disciples. And that means we have to open our lives, we have to open our mouths, our hearts, and we have to talk about who Jesus is. And, and we can come up with all kinds of things like, you know, me, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not designed to really be speaking outwardly about my faith. Um, I'm not an evangelist. Let's, let's leave that to the professionals. Let's leave that to Pastor John up here in Arnold. Let's leave it to, to the Walshes in Kazakhstan and other paid professionals, missionaries to go out and share the gospel. Um, we can say it's totally out of my comfort zone. We could say that, um, what if people reject me? I mean, that's a fear I think we all have. Or, or whatever happened to the social norm of not talking about politics or religion? We can't fulfill the Great Commission unless we breach that. Um, or we could say we live in a different culture than then, so it's not really appropriate now. But if we had a whiteboard, I think we could come up with dozens of reasons um, to, to say that's not really for me personally. Um, and I got to tell you, I, I, even being a missionary, I, I feel the same fears, the same intimidation maybe that you do, the same concerns about rejection. That's not, that's not unusual. Um, and I think I want to read this again. We're going to hear this a couple times today. But look at the whole passage. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, Jesus opens that up by saying, He's been given full authority. And we know that Jesus is with us, so the question, the logical question is, why, why would I fear? Um, Jesus is 
going to empower me to do what I need to do. He's preparing the hearts I'm going to talk to. He's going to protect me. And those things are all true, but sometimes it's difficult. But I think also when we look at the rest of the passage, we've, it, it's interesting to, to think about what, what the commands are in that. When we first read it, we see a lot of verbs. We see go, make, baptize, teach, and behold. When in reality, there's only two commands in the entire Great Commission. The first one is go, which if we look at that, it's at the actual language, it's not going as in you go somewhere else, you go to a foreign nation, you go to the city that's shared your faith. It's as you go is the way it's more accurately translated. So as you go about your, your life, as you go about your normal everyday things, that's when we're making disciples. That's the first word. The, the other one's, the other is, is behold. So those are the two imperatives. Go and behold. The other ones are participles. Now talk about getting out of my comfort zone. I'm talking about grammar here, okay? I didn't have the greatest GPA. Um, but behold is like saying, look to me. And he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the first one is go as you are going, make disciples. And teaching them, all, all baptizing and teaching them all I have a command. That's part of making a disciple. That doesn't stand alone by itself. And sometimes we get that mixed up. We want to teach before we actually see somebody become a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And then behold, is look to me. Um, we look at that and it's like, it's kind of like saying, um, he is our strength. There's three chief ways to look to Jesus. As our savior, as our comforter, as our provider. He's, he's the one that, that is with us all the time, empowering us to do what we do. And we can look at his words, what Jesus said, um, like the Great Commission, or what he said at the Sermon on the Mount, what he says about serving people, what he says about kindness, what he says about forgiveness. We look at those things, and those are, those are things that we want to teach other people. Those are things that we need to learn. But we can also look at what he did, um, the methodology that Jesus used in making disciples. In Josiah Venture, um, one of our key convictions is that we believe that both the model and the mandate for ministry are found in the life of Christ. So we can look at Jesus, and we can see our Savior, we can see our Comforter, we can see a great teacher, but we can also see how he did things. We can see patterns that he set that we can actually reproduce. And I want to look at, and, and there's a lot of those things, and we're not going to get through them all today, um, but I want to look at one in specific about how he started his ministry. Um, the, the basic starting point, I think, I believe, for any disciple making. And if we go back to John 1 and 2, we can read about Jesus actually starting his ministry. And right after he was baptized by John, he, the first thing he did is he went into the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days of prayer and fasting and, of course, the temptation. And I believe what he did, was doing is he was, he was praying about, okay, God, now you want me to start my ministry. What is it you want me to do? What are my next steps? And, and I, we always call that in our little training sessions of God, looking for the, what's the Father's agenda 
for me as I go about what I'm doing? What's the Father's agenda today for me? What's the Father's agenda for my ministry? Because we want to be in step with God. And that's what Jesus was doing. So he came out of the wilderness. And initially, what happened was a couple of John's disciples overheard John say, when Jesus walked by, behold, there's the Lamb of God. And these two, these two followers of John started following Jesus, and they came to him, and they said, you know, what, where are you staying? I want to read this passage, because this is, this is really fascinating to me. It says, the next day when John was there again with two of his disciples, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them and followed, saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Jesus said, come and see, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. And it was about four in the afternoon. And then Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the, the, Moses, the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And the third day, we skip ahead a few verses here to second chapter of John. It says, On the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, why is this so significant to disciple-making? First, we see the disciples, two of the new disciples, come and ask Jesus where he was staying. And Jesus says, come and see. And they went and spent the rest of that day with them. Then they went and they brought their brothers back. And they did it again. All the while, Jesus is saying, okay, this is my life. I mean, he's not saying this, but that's what I'm, I'm saying. He's having him into his life. He's sharing scripture. He's sharing what the prophet said, what was written about in Moses. And they, they had these spiritual conversations because they knew he was the Messiah. But it wasn't outside of spending intentional time together. Um, he was exposing them to who he was. And <coughs> excuse me. And then he says that Jesus decided to go to Nazareth, and then he traveled to Cana in Galilee and went to a wedding. Now, weddings are events that, would, that take sometimes up to a week, three, four days a week. So you can see he comes out of the wilderness, and the first thing he does to begin his ministry is start spending time and exposing people to who he was. Not preaching, not setting people down and explaining, okay, I am, I am the one you need to follow. He was sharing who he was. They, they fell in love with that and they invited others into that. And then he continued to spend time. Now, when I look at, at ministry, like if I'm going to, Jesus has been waiting 30 years to start his ministry. He's baptized, he goes in the desert. The first thing he does when he comes out of that, as he starts building relationships and spending time with people. And we see that those guys stay with him for the next year and a half. 
right up, and they stayed with him actually all to the end. But the next year and a half was this time that they were getting to know him. They were watching him preach. They were watching him do miracles. They were spending, being, being a part of a, a rabbi's group was spending 24-7 with that rabbi and actually learning from them, sitting at their feet and seeing how they lived their life. So I look at that and I think, okay, I'm going to start my ministry. I've been preparing for 30 years and I want to jump right into it. I want to start doing things. And yet Jesus flips that around and says ministry is building time and building a relationship through time with people. And I think that's one of the things that is easy for me to get wrong, and I don't know about you, but I look at ministry as the work of what I'm doing, and relationships are secondary. But what Jesus is saying is the work of ministry is relationship. It's inviting people into your life so they can be exposed to Jesus. Um, So we look at Jesus' parting instructions. We look at how he started ministry. And I want to jump ahead now to the upper room where he's praying for his disciples. He's actually praying for you and I as well. We call this the upper room discourse. This is right before the crucifixion. He brings the disciples up there. They enjoy the last supper. It was a Passover meal. They're having what's normally a celebration. And he's sharing with them his parting words. He's going to leave. He's bringing the Holy. He's going to send the Holy Spirit, but then he, but then he prays for them. And this section of the prayer, John 17, says, "I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me." I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. So first of all, he's praying for the disciples and everyone who would come through their testimony to be believers. And he says, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. See, Jesus knew that our greatest apologetic would be our unity, our love for each other and for people. Unity, love, caring for each other, not gospel tracts, not eloquent speeches or presentations, but unity and love. That's the best that we can offer the world to show them that we are unified with Jesus and with each other. Jesus started by exposing his first disciples to who he was by spending time together. Extended time with intentional conversation. And his prayer states that we can expose people to him by exposing others to our Christian community. And that's, I want sometimes we do this when we teach. We go from you know one section of scripture to another. It's like, does this really make sense? Does this really all tie together? So now I want to jump ahead to the sequel, to Acts. Acts 1, 42-47 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts 
praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. The Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. So verse 47 again. They spent time together praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The people outside of the group of disciples. They were gaining favor with those people. They saw how lives were being lived. How they shared. How they helped each other. How they served one another. How they were unified. And that gained them favor by the people around them. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It just seems to me that Jesus' prayer for unity and for love as an apologetic, as for other people to see, that prayer was fulfilled, I think, in the first chapter of Acts, in the early church. It seems like they took unity very, very seriously. It seems like those on the outside of the community, looking in, were exposed to Jesus through this extraordinary community. It seems God used this unity to draw believers to himself. Now, what Don and I have been here since um, a, year, a year ago coming August, or two years ago coming August. And one of the things that really drew to this dust to this church is the, was the openness and the friendliness and the warmth that we experienced here. We really felt like this was a church that, that cared for us, and it was evident to us that they loved each other. And so we wanted to be part of that. And we joined community groups and we started doing that. And we can see how the community groups are really a, a smaller part of that that really care for each other. We see people giving meals to others. We see people taking, giving people rides to, to doctor's appointments. We see people really answering needs as they come about. It's that kind of a church. And that's something that's a blessing that we should be thankful for. But I wonder what it would be like now if we took and looked outside of those groups and invited them in to see Jesus through that kind of unity and love. What if, what, what if we started befriending a, a neighbor and then with somebody else in our community group, we had a backyard barbecue if it's summertime, help them shovel snow maybe if it's wintertime. Um, but what if, what, what if we could, could extend that kind of community, expose other people to it um, in a genuine way? N- nobody wants to be a project, but everybody wants to experience acceptance and love and care. So what if we were to team up with each other and just start inviting people into that kind of community. Before we invite them to church, invite them into that kind of community just to spend time with them, intentional time. We've all got unbelieving people around us and sometimes it's easy to, to have all of our relationships centered around church. But the, the honest truth is, the hard truth, is if we don't have relationships with people who don't know Jesus, we can't live out his great commission. There's no way we can and so if we can reach out to people who don't know Jesus and expose them to who he is, to our care for them, but also if we, dub, if we team up with other people from the church, we can do that together so that they might be able to see who Jesus is. And we could gain their favor by that kind of unity. And remember, it's not something that we go 
and do. It's something we do as we go. As we go through our daily, our weekly, our monthly rhythms, it's about taking normal, everyday life opportunities to express to others Christ's love through our relationships, our actions, and our words. We watched that video of Tomas. And I don't know if you remember what he said, but he grew up in a family where it was an atheist country. His family, he didn't know anything about church. He thought it was something people just went to out of tradition for old people. And it wasn't until he met two believers in his new school and those guys opening up their lives to him and sharing who Jesus was that he actually was drawn to God and fell in love with Jesus. It was through those actions that he became part of the sequel of the church. He is now active, serving full-time, fulfilling the Great Commission. But he is also active in sharing with his friends and people around him, his neighbors. So Jesus started his ministry by spending time and building relationships with those that would walk with him right to the end. It was intentional relationship. It was time. That's how Jesus started his ministry. He put, he put relationships first. He prayed that they and us would share an uncommon unity. And love for one another so that the world would see and know that we love God and that who he is. He would, they would they could be exposed to Jesus through our care and concern for each other and for them. His early believers started the church with just a few, but the way they interacted and cared for each other, they gained favor with all the people, and God added to the number daily. We are in the next sequel. How will the story be written around us? How, How will Chapel in the Pines be featured in the history of Christianity as a church that loved each other, as a church that loved its community, as a church that brought people in through that love and unity. I think that would be our prayer, all of us, that we'd be those kind of people. One of Paul Harvey's other quotes that I didn't include earlier was, we had gone from being fishers of men to keepers of the aquarium. And for me, I want to be a fisher of men, not a keeper of the aquarium. And I pray that we would all join together with that.